We're going to be looking at this passage uh, that follows uh, this a, a remarkable account that we looked at last week, where Peter had taken uh, Jesus had taken Peter and James and John up the Mount of Transfiguration, and they saw Jesus in all of His glory, and it's amazing and it's wonderful, and and so this is really remarkable. Uh, moment where Peter says, hey, let's stay here. We don't want to go anywhere. Uh, But of course, they've got to come back down the mountain into all of the world's uh, brokenness and chaos and confusion. And and that's really what we're seeing in this passage, verses 14 through 29. Uh, Please stand in honor of God's word. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we pause now. We look to you in dependence. We can't even understand your word without your blessing and without your grace for you to open our eyes and our ears So, Lord, would you help us to see your glory, uh, the glory and the face of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Um, So, yeah, we're we're back down the mountain, um, and all good things seem to come to an end. Uh, This vision of Jesus' glory, et cetera, and, and we're at this scene where there's just there's bickering and faithlessness, and then there's this faulty faith on behalf of this dad who comes and brings his demon-possessed son uh, to the disciples for their help. They can't help. All, all hell 
is breaking loose. And, uh, and, and it concludes with this remarkable note of resurrection faith that, that we're going to get to that, um, that is incredibly encouraging. So let's, let's begin with the ugliness, uh, the chaos and the confusion at the bottom of the mountain um, where, like I said, uh, they've just come down from this amazing episode, a, 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 an unveiling, uh, a revelation of Jesus' glory and the fancy word, the word that gets our attention is the apocalypse of Jesus' glory, where <clears throat> I think we tend to view the Mount of Transfiguration, if, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you, know, you, you probably think of Jesus uh, getting that glow, that glory, as if the Father says, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him, and in that moment, you know, there's this heavenly bestowal of, of glory and beauty on Jesus, and the disciples all go, oh my goodness, you know, we haven't seen this before, and then the glory fades, and then, you know, it's just good old Jesus again, they come back down the mountain. That, that's the conventional way of looking at what happened. Uh, but I don't know that that's the accurate way. Because Jesus has always had the glory of heaven. Eternally. He's the eternal Son of God, the second member of the triune God. And from eternity past, He has had that glory. He has had that praise from His Father in heaven. Um, he's had that holiness and that beauty about Him. What changed, actually, was his incarnation. There was a point in time when, when he took on our flesh, when God took on flesh, and Jesus was fully God and fully man, and he walked among us. And what, um, what he put on was our humility and our humanity. And for that brief moment at the top of the mountain, he didn't put on glory as much as he took off humility. He, he took off that dishonor, uh, and Peter and James and John saw him for who, what he truly is, this, this holy, beautiful um, being. And then he puts back on the humility of his humanity and comes back down the mountain. Um, and what they see at the bottom of the mountain is just this picture of the world uh, without, the world the way it's not supposed to be, right? Where you've got this excited crowd uh, and they come and they gather around this supernatural scene and it's, you know, it's a sideshow. And they're like, oh my goodness, what's happening? Uh, and the scribes are arguing with the disciples. There's bickering and, and, and conflict. And there's a father who has a son who's possessed by a demon. And I just want you to imagine you who are parents, that if this were your son, if this were your child, what would that be like to have a child who has these fits where, you know, how is he described? Well, the demon throws him down. It makes him mute. Uh, his child can't speak. There are these epileptic episodes where he's made rigid and he has these seizures and he grinds his teeth and he foams at the mouth. And we're even told that uh, this demon, uh, not content simply uh, to, to ruin this boy's quality of life and health, but the demon is actually uh, has an intention to destroy this, this young man. Um, when, when, this, when the opportunity is ripe, uh, this is a very uh, uh, strategic uh, and demonic force that when there's water or fire, 
that's when uh, the demon will throw this young man into seizures looking for opportunities to destroy uh, the boy, right? So, so this is this deadly, dark, demonic force uh, that is operating at the base of the mountain. And the disciples are powerless. They can't do anything. They're, they're, they're unable to, to stop and to deliver uh, this boy from this demon. They're helpless in the face of this darkness. These are the disciples who previously Jesus had empowered to, to stand against darkness and to stand against these demonic forces. Back in chapter 6, verse 7, we read how Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And then they go out and they do all these deliverances and they come back and they're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Wow. Um, look at how the demons submit uh, to your name, Jesus. Right? But now they're ineffective. You know, nothing, it's not working. Can you imagine how confused and, and frustrated and you know, despondent they, they are, um, and they're arguing with the scribes, and, you know, what's, what's going on? And then Jesus, Jesus in verse 19, uh, shocks us. I don't know if this shocked you when we read it earlier, but Jesus in verse 19 says, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to, to bear with you? Bring him to me, right? Jesus is upset. I mean, you can't, you can't explain it any other way. Jesus is not happy. How long am I to, to bear with you and to be with you, right? Um, they are not exercising uh, faith in Jesus. They're being faithless. And, and this is the reason why they couldn't drive out the demon in the first place. And uh, I'm, I'm making a little bit of an assumption, so just kind of put an asterisk by this. But doesn't it make sense to you that what the reason why at the end of this episode... Uh, Mark gives us this little postlude where they go into this house and the disciples say, what, ha what happened? Why couldn't we drive the demon out? And Jesus' explanation is, well, this kind can only come out through prayer. And what I'm imagining is what's happened is that the disciples moved from this place of prayerful dependence on Jesus initially back in chapter 6. You know, they're given this power and they're supernaturally delivering people from demonic powers, uh, from this darkness, and they slowly begin to think that somehow this power no longer came from Jesus, but is innate. Uh, it, it's something that they have intrinsic to themselves, and they're relying on themselves. And they get to this point at the bottom of the mountain where they're no longer relying on Jesus to deliver uh, demonic powers. They somehow stopped or, or started to assume that they've got this power in and of themselves. And they're no longer praying. They're no longer relying on Jesus to do this, uh, this miraculous healing. Uh, you know, this is, when Jesus says things like what he says in verse 19, we all get uncomfortable with Jesus. We like Jesus when he says nice things and encouraging things. And then when he starts saying, how long am I to be with you? And how long am I to bear with you? We don't know what to do with that. We don't know what to do with Jesus when he's upset with us. And we start asking questions like, wait a minute, does he love us? Does he love them? Let me just ask you who are parents, or maybe it's been a while since you've been active in your parenting, but you get it. 
Like, what, what we do as parents is we're trying to help our, our children embrace healthy habits and, and, you know, wisdom and holiness and all this stuff. And, and when, they, when they reject that, when they choose not to do that, what do you do as a mother and a father? You respond, you react, you get upset. If you're not upset, then what's wrong? Why aren't you upset when your children choose what is you know, improper, unholy, unhealthy, whatever? Why wouldn't that bother you? If it doesn't bother you, that makes me wonder, do you care? Don't you care? When your children choose you know, to rebel, when they choose to do something unhealthy or, or, or hurtful. Of course you're upset. The reason why you're upset is because you love your kids. The reason why Jesus is upset is because he loves the disciples. Because they're choosing not to rely on him. They're choosing not to depend on him. That makes him upset. And this is a holy reaction to them. He's not rejecting them. He's not disowning them. But he is upset because they are not relying on him. Uh, over and over again, we, we see this reaction from Jesus correcting the disciples, even rebuking their lack of faith. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love them. It's because he loves them. He cares whether their souls are in a healthy place or not. And he's calling them back, just like we call our kids back. Come on back into this place of, of safety and, and health, right? Um, well, William Lane says it's a measure of Jesus's infinite patience that he continues to instruct the 12 and prepare them for the day when they're going to stand in his place and continue his work. They need to learn to depend on him constantly. But they've got this faulty faith, right? They're not relying on Jesus anymore. They can't deliver the demon and he's got to teach them to pray. We get another example of this kind of faulty faith in this father who brings his son who's got this, this unclean spirit, a demonic spirit. Uh, and, and he's saying, Lord, I believe, but, but help my unbelief, right? If you can, please do something. And Jesus just kind of crosses his arms. If I can? If you can't? Really? Of course I can. Um, it's, and it's a great picture of Jesus' compassion. But um, let me ask you, as you look at this father who's bringing his son to Jesus and he's just saying, Lord, if you can, Lord, help my unbelief, how would you grade his faith? What grade would you give him on a report, a report card of faith? Like he's being tested, how is your faith? Is it, is it an A? You know, well, I don't... Obviously not, okay? Um, help my unbelief. He's, he's not doing so great today. Not an A. Uh, I would say even a B- minus feels a little bit too generous. Maybe it's a C. A C, C faith. Um, D- minus feels a little judgy. We're not going to do that. Uh, so we'll just call it like a C kind of faith. You know, average faith. Definitely room for improvement, but, um, but, but not, not, not the worst faith that you would find. But, I, but I'm going to suggest that the A through, you know, F grading scale is really not what applies here. Do you remember when you would get tests and they were, they, they, you wouldn't get a grade, it was just pass or fail. Did you ever take a class like that in college maybe? You had the, just the pass-fail class. You're either going to pass it or you're going to fail it. We're not going to give you a grade. 
You either get credit or you don't. And I really think that's a better way to look at faith. Your faith either gets credit with Jesus or it doesn't. It either passes or it doesn't. Um, This father's faith was good enough to warrant a, a positive response from Jesus. And at the end of the day, that's all any of us needs. If you're in college and you're stressing about your GPA, come on, just relax. At the end of the day, all that matters is, do you have a diploma or not? That's it. That's all any prospective employer is going to ask you. Where did you get your diploma from? You know, whatever. I don't care what you got in biology. Um, so it's pass or fail. And at the end of the day, does your faith, is it good enough to get a positive response from Jesus? Do not assume that any and every faith gets a positive response from Jesus. Do not assume that Jesus is so sort of just generic and undiscerning that he doesn't care about your faith. In fact, and I want to invite you to turn, turn to chapter 6 uh, in Mark's gospel if you've got your Bibles open. Um, look at how uh, the people in Nazareth responded to him. It said in verse 5 that he could, he could do no mighty work there in Nazareth. This is Jesus returning to where he grew up as a boy, right? Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Like there were just a few people whose faith was such that it warranted a positive response from Jesus. But the rest, you know, he marveled because of their unbelief, because of their lack of faith. Um, Now we're the people of Nazareth just not up to snuff you know was Jesus just rejecting them because they were sort of inferior Christians who didn't make the cut was was that what was going on well jump back to verse three if you've got that place open still it wasn't that Jesus was rejecting them verse three says that they took offense at him they rejected Jesus and that's why their faith did not pass the test so how much faith is enough? That, that's kind of the question that we end up asking ourselves. How much faith do I need to have to get a positive response from Jesus? But maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe a better, healthier way to ask the question is not how much faith is enough to make Jesus happy. Maybe a better question is to ask, where is your faith? No matter how much it is, how much or how small it is, what's the object of your Where are you placing your faith? That's the better question. Jack Miller put it this way. Don't seek repentance or faith as such. Don't get hung up on the topic of your faith or, you know, the other side of faith is repentance. Don't don't seek faith or repentance as such, but seek Christ. Seek Christ. When you have Christ, you have repentance and faith. But beware of seeking an experience of repentance. Beware of seeking an experience of faith. Just seek an experience of Christ. See Christ, because it takes faith to get him. If you have Christ, that means you have that faith. But seek Christ. Don't settle for the step along the way. Get to the goal, and that goal is Christ. So focusing on having enough faith means that kind of like you're focusing on yourself and your faith. Do I have enough faith? I don't know. Am I doing this right? You're not seeking Jesus and you're not relying on Jesus and his grace. You're relying on, do I have enough faith? 
Relying on Jesus is the point. Maybe this is what got the disciples in trouble. They stopped relying on Jesus. They were relying on themselves. Jesus is happy to welcome even a mustard seed's worth of faith. As long as that mustard seed is focused on on him, right? So um, some of us maybe have bought into this sort of false idea that uh, mature Christians don't doubt. Uh, that, that, you know, if you're going to be a, a strong Christian, uh, then you're going to have this perfect faith. You're going to be free from any unbelief, any anxiety, any worry. You know, if I could just kind of get to that level, then, then I'd arrive. Um, but I don't know if that's really a, a realistic expectation south of heaven. Um, look at us. Every single one of us inhabits a a body that is affected by the fall. That means our minds, our wills, our hearts, our actions, our words. You know, you and I, can I just put it candidly, you've never done anything perfectly in your entire life. Why do you expect your faith to be perfect? If your faith is perfect, then it's, it's a degree of certainty that actually is what we will get to one day when the faith becomes sight. But faith, by definition, kind of has this mix in it. Philip Yancey puts it this way, doubt always coexists with faith. For in the presence of certainty, who would need faith at all? What I believe, help, my unbelief. That might be the best prayer in the entire Bible. It's honest, it's humble, and it's Christ-reliant, right? And you see the compassion of Jesus here. He heals the man's son. He's not standing there, you know, like, oh, you didn't make the grade. You need to get to like B minus level faith before I'll, I'll deal with your son. Go home, get some faith, come back, and then we'll talk, right? I mean, is that how Jesus responds to this, this man and his son? He's incredibly compassionate. I mean, can you imagine Jesus punishing you because you don't have enough faith? Ah, oh, terrible report card. Go to your room, you know, you're, you're taking your iPad away. Uh, taking your phone away, you're grounded uh, until you get more faith. Can you imagine Jesus rejecting you because you don't have enough faith in him? Well, you're not trusting me enough. That's not how it works. As long as our faith is in him, even a mustard seed's worth is enough. Instead, Jesus, full of grace and mercy and compassion, says, come to me. All you labor and are heavy laden, I'm going to give you rest. I'm going, to, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, you know, this prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, really is kind of the best that we can do. This side of heaven. Nobody ever does anything perfect. Get used to having imperfect faith. But the question is, is it focused on Jesus? Now, this prayer is not a cop-out. Now, I want to be careful. I'm trying to make sure that we understand the graciousness and the compassion of Jesus. He will take your mustard seed worth of faith. But the prayer is, help my unbelief. I don't want to stay here. 
I don't want to be complacent and I don't want to just settle for the mustard seed's worth of faith. I want more faith. I want to grow. I want to see this mustard seed bear fruit and get bigger. And so that really is the, the picture of maturity. Not that somehow you've arrived and you don't ever suffer worry or anxiety and, you know, and so on. No, here's what maturity looks like. You are committed to growing in your faith in Jesus. You are committed to relying on him more and more and more. Every day, every week, every year, more reliance on Jesus. Is that your goal? If you're here and you claim to be a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, is that your goal? If it's not a conscious goal of yours, guess what? You're, it's not going to be a conscious pursuit. Don't expect to grow in your faith if it's not a goal to grow in your faith. Don't expect your faith to grow if you are not opening this book Daily, I mean regularly, right? We'll just say regularly. Um, maybe, maybe you miss a day or two here and there. But look, every day, be in this word. Be in God's word and hear his promises. Do you know how we get relief from our anxiety and our doubt and our worry? It's hearing his promises. Hearing his will. Hearing his word rather than sort of this endless tape in our head, this endless recording that just loops and loops and loops about how we... We don't have enough, we're not smart enough, we can't do this, and, and so on and so on. But opening his word and, and hearing it and receiving it and being a student of it. Uh, by prayer. You, you don't expect your faith to grow if you're not regularly praying and, and listening to him and, and calling out to him and casting our anxieties on him because he cares for us. That's how our faith grows as we find him again and again and again reliable. And faithful. Don't, don't expect your, your faith to get any bigger if you're not regularly doing this. And I know I'm speaking to the choir, but worship is so important to having your faith strengthened and to grow. And that doesn't just mean corporate worship, but just an attitude of worship. Like as you leave these doors, you continue to be his worshipers and, and you just continue to give thanks in all circumstances for what he's blessed us with. And that, that, that increases our faith because we realize, yeah, everything I have comes from him. He's reliable. He's dependable. He provides for me. And let's not forget, um, it's kind of hard for faith to grow unless we deliberately put ourselves in situations and circumstances where I need to actively depend on Jesus. Where I stop living inside this insular bubble where I've got this. I'm in my wheelhouse. I've got control. I know all the variables. I'm prepared for any and every contingency. And you know what? I don't really need Jesus for this. Your faith's not going to grow. Our faith grows when we step out in the places that are outside of our wheelhouse, outside of our skill set, outside of our ability to control the variables. And I know that's scary. 
Yes, it is. And that's where Jesus shows up. Not, not suggesting you go out and do just foolish, stupid stuff in Jesus' name, you know, and throw yourself off the temple because, you know, the Lord promised he's not going to let your foot, you know, be dashed upon a rock. No, 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 no. Jesus wasn't stupid. He wasn't foolish. So don't be, don't be reckless, but, but step out. What are you afraid of? If you're afraid of something, ask yourself, why am I afraid? And if the reason comes down to, I don't know that I can depend on myself to overcome this, then maybe that's a good thing to embrace and, and face into and rely on Jesus a little bit more. At the end of the day, what he's promising us is this resurrection faith um, that's really beautiful that here at the end of this episode. Mark, as, um, as he's recording Peter's recollection of this account coming down the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's telling Mark, you know, this is what Jesus did, and he healed this boy and, you know, blessed this father's faith. It was small, but it was still relying on Jesus. And then the way that Mark describes what happened in verses 26 and 27 is a picture of resurrection. In verse 26, you know, the boy was healed after crying out and convulsing him terribly. The demon came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, right? You remember we were looking at what it meant for Jesus to take your hand in his and to personally and intimately hold your hand and call you to new life. And he takes that boy by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. That's resurrection language. Same words that are used to describe Jesus being lifted up and raised from the dead. Mark is showing us Jesus' power over death. He's showing us firsthand that the, the life that Jesus offers everyone who trusts in him. Jesus can save us. He has power to save us from destruction, from darkness, from the devil, from death itself. Read you a few verses here from Ephesians chapter 2 and listen to the language, how this is true. What happened to the boy is true for every single person, spiritually speaking, who trusts in Jesus. How you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirits now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then listen to the resurrection. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated, and then he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Anyone here, anyone here who puts his or her faith in Jesus is raised with Jesus. That is his promise to you. He took your sins away on the cross. Your condemnation is taken away. And his victory over death is your victory over death. And you are raised with him by virtue of believing in him, trusting in him, relying on him instead of yourself. Instead of relying on your good works and your obedience and all of the things that you do well, no, you transfer that self-dependence onto Christ and depend on his good works, and his obedience, his death, and his resurrection. There's another passage that points to this whole resurrection faith, and uh, maybe you remember 
after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the disciples, but one of them was missing, Thomas. I don't know, he was out running an errand, going to get, you know, some ice or something. Um, and, and he came, comes back and Jesus was here. Oh my goodness, uh, no, come on. He wasn't risen from the dead. Unless I put my, my fingers in the nail wounds and my hand in his side, I can't believe. And so Jesus shows up and he says, Thomas, I want you to come here. Put your finger here. Put your hand here. See, do not disbelieve, but believe, is what Jesus said to Thomas. And Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Which is all of us. You're blessed to believe. At the end of the day, um, our faith hangs on the resurrection. If it happened, you're blessed. If it didn't happen, we're fools, you know. Maybe this is nice to be together on a Sunday morning. We've got good friendships, but the world, the world was right and we're to be pitied. But the resurrection did happen. And the resurrection's coming. And if you're here and, I don't know, you, you resonate with this father, you know, his, his unbelief, right? But your prayer's a little bit different. You're coming not from a posture of faulty faith, but maybe more just from a posture of kind of fundamental skepticism. Like, you want to believe, but you can't. Uh, your prayer is, Lord, I don't believe, at least not yet, but help my belief. You know, I mean, you're here. Something's going on. I don't know. You're curious, maybe? If that's the case, wonderful. Let me just give you two things to think about as, as we leave. As you're thinking, I, I, I don't believe, but Lord, maybe you can help me believe. And if that's you, then I want you to think about two things. You do not have to believe perfectly in order to follow Jesus. I mean, we covered that. But there's this sense in a lot of people who don't want to be hypocrites. And you're thinking, I don't want to be a hypocrite if I'm going to become a Christian, if I'm going to follow Jesus. I have to have this perfect faith. And I'm going to wait until I don't have any more doubts, and until I don't have any more concerns. And then, you know, if that day comes, then I'll step over the line and I'll believe in Jesus. But, but we've already looked at how, no, that's impossible. You're not going to have perfect faith. Give up on that ideal. The best you can have is faulty faith that nonetheless relies on Jesus. Your focus is on him. I want to call you. Step over the line. Step over this line from this sort of stubborn unbelief of I've got to have all my, my questions answered to just fundamental reliance on Jesus. I've still got some doubts. I've still got questions. But Jesus has proven to me that he has the one that would, would save my soul, forgive my sins, and give me eternal life. Secondly, don't don't insist that Jesus needs to help you with every single doubt and every single question that you've got, that he's got to answer all of your, you know, eternal cosmic mysteries. Um, I mean, let's just imagine what would happen if he would do that. That every single question that you have uh, as, as somebody who's skeptical, that he would answer and fill in every one of those blanks, what position would that put you in as a human being? really rare and very unique. For you to fathom all mysteries and to know all of the infinite complexities of this universe, all the things that you know, keep all the philosophers and the debaters up at night, if you had an answer to every single one of those, guess what? The heavenly host could call your agent and retain you as a counselor to God. 
Not bad. Is that realistic? Bring your doubts to him. He can handle them. But you need to know that it is faith. It's not, Jesus isn't calling us to blind faith, but it, it is faith. You're not going to get every blank filled in. But you get enough filled in to know that Jesus is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus uh, who shows us through his resurrection, uh, through his life, through his death, through his power over death, that he is trustworthy, that he is reliable. We get a, a view of your glory in his face, and we can know that through him we can have eternal life. Lord, we come to you with our faltering faith. We confess our anxieties and our doubts in the places where we need to grow, and we just ask for you to help our unbelief Grow our faith, we pray, and have mercy on us. Lord, we pray that for our entire church. We pray that for us as a congregation that we would grow in our faith, that we would not settle for C- minus or whatever grade we sort of feel like we're at, but instead that we would just cling more and more to Jesus, that we would find him more and more reliable, more and more trustworthy and praiseworthy and more and more dependable. So Lord, please forgive us for the places where we rely on ourselves instead. Father, we pause and we do pray for a few of our, our own households here.